Hello, welcome back to Franklin Covey's On Leadership Podcast Series. I'm Scott Miller, your host and interviewer, the author of the book, Master Mentors, Volume 1, 30 Transformative Insights from Our Greatest Minds, where we feature our favorite interviews that are the most transformational. The book is available now. In fact, Volume 2 has just been available for pre-release and pre-ordering that releases on October 4th. Some of the names you'll recognize from the volumes are Tiffany Alice, Michael Hyatt, Patrick Bett, David, Marie Folio, Matthew McConaughey, Grant Cardone, Ryan Serhant, Mel Robbins, James Clear, Emmanuel Acho, others like that. We hope that you'll pick up a copy of Volume 1 and Volume 2. And you never know, as we look on our way to 10 volumes of Master Mentors based on podcast guests from On Leadership, maybe today's guest will agree to be featured in Master Mentors Volume 3 from HarperCollins. Our guest today is the incomparable author, speaker, coach, influencer, guide, and all-around professional troublemaker, Lovey Ajayi-Jones. She's joining us from her home in Chicago. Lovey, welcome to On Leadership. Thank you for, so much for having me, Scott. Man, it's a delighted. Uh, I've met my match. I've met my match in terms of uh, your energy, your enthusiasm, your courage, your fearless nature. I am delighted that you've decided to Take the time today to pour into our guests and listeners, our, our, our viewers and listeners from around the world. Lovey, what I'd like to do before we get into this idea of professional troublemaker, will you re reorient your journey to the very few people left in the world that have either not listened to your podcast, watched your TED Talk, read one of your many best-selling books. Talk a bit about your journey. What is your mission? What is your voice? And we'll get into the, all the topics around being a professional troublemaker. Yes. I think my mission is to loan people courage, honestly. Mm. I think um, my voice, my work, who I am in the world is to make people feel some joy, make them think critically and compel them to take action that's going to leave this world better than they found it. And I show up fully as myself in whatever space I write, put words on paper that feel audacious with the goal that when I am no longer here, people say the world was better because she was here. So, Scott, where do you want to start with my journey? Let's talk about some definitions. Yeah. First of all, your books are riotous. They're some of the few books that no one reads out of obligation. They read out of joy, validation, hilarity. I think you used the phrase, uh, you create a safe space in a dumpster fire world. You have genius that you have been able to rarely deploy from the mind to the page. That's a talent mm -hmm. all of us wish we had. What I want to talk about is some definition of terms. You talk about how courage is not a character trait. Rather, you yeah. think it's a habit. Riff on that. Yeah. I, you know, we think about courageous people. So I've always been outspoken. I'm talking four-year-old Lovey was the little girl who would tell, tell an adult, I don't like what you just did, or I don't think that was fair, whether or not she'd get in trouble for it. And that habit of speaking the truth and using my voice just carried me into adulthood. And a lot of people call it courage. I say it's not because I was born bold. It's that I've constantly made the choice to choose what was hard if I felt like it was necessary. So I think courage is a habit. It's not a personality trait. It's not some innate DNA piece in you. It's you waking up every single day and saying, today, I'm going to either say the thing that's going to be hard. I'm going to do the thing that's going to be hard. And I know it's hard. I am afraid, but I'm going to do it anyway. So I think about the fact that courage cannot exist without fear first. So if you do something and it was easy, wasn't really that courageous. The fear is to let you know that yes, now I have to choose either move forward or stop. 
and courage is constantly choosing to move forward. Love you. Let's take that and rewind a bit. Uh, part of your identity is that you were born in Nigeria. You are a Nigerian American. As I mentioned mm -hmm. to you off air, we've had several Nigerian Americans that have been guests on our program, including Emmanuel Acho twice and Tiffany Alice. Both of those are friends and fellow Nigerian Americans. There is something special. And pre-forgive me if I ask this question the wrong way. I want you to answer it your way. There okay. is something unique and special about... Uh, respect and culture and family bond, manners, gratitude that comes from being Nigerian. I've been to the African yeah. continent. I've not been to your home country. You are Nigerian American. What is it that I'm saying wrong, but I'm getting right when it comes to understanding courage and fear and respect that is unique yeah. perhaps to Nigerians? I hear you on the question. So I think it's because Nigerians actually prioritize respect especially mm. for elders. Mm. We revere people who are older than us and how we actually create hierarchies is age, not really gender. So for us, if you are older, we actually defer to you. And I think that's just been embedded in us since we were young, that honor your parents, honor people who walk in the room of authority. And we also walk with this extra bravado because I think Nigerians are culturally, we're loud. <laughs> we show up in a room and we take up space. I think it's because for a country of people who've had to do a lot of fighting, who've had to, I mean, because Nigeria was under colonialism rule till 1960. So culturally, we are just a really bold people because to make it in that country, you have to be. If you're the person who waits for something to drop at her feet, you're gonna be waiting for a long time. So I think that just follows everything we do. So I moved to the US when I was nine with my family and I really brought that with me in that it was my dream to always honor my parents and by living a life that would make them proud. And I think that really ends up being a battery in our backs for since we're little and then we just carry it with us. So it becomes our motivating factor. And I think for me, one of my biggest, um, one of my biggest accomplishments I would say by far was being able to retire my mom after my first book dropped and hit the New York Times bestselling list. And for a Nigerian kid, that is the ultimate accomplishment. And for me, I was like, okay, I've made it. <laughs> I love how you describe that as being able to retire your mother. Uh, yeah. Lovey, of the many tender, tender stories you share in your most recent book, Professional Troublemaker, which we'll get to in a moment here, you talk about a story as a small child in America and your name and the confidence or fear that came from uh, uh, being introduced to a new classroom. And, and there's many stories to tease out from that. One of yeah. them is just the general aspect of knowing someone's name being able to pronounce someone's name. I think I read once where some horrifyingly low number of Americans actually have passports, like 30%, which of course speaks to our appreciation for diversity in different cultures and such. And yeah. uh, I mentioned to you off air that yesterday on my social media, I posted that I was interviewing you today in between Ariana Huffington and Deepak Chopra. And that when I mentioned your name, I called you on my social media, Lovey Jones, because it was easier because it, I, I didn't have to go back and know how to pronounce or spell what is your hyphenated last name, not your last name. And one of your followers, who I don't think is a friend of yours, but she's a fan, she scolded me offline and said, hey, her name is this, it's important to her. And I reread the chapter in the book. Would you just take as much time as you'd yeah. like, recreate the chapter about your name, how it became yeah. your current name, and reinforce the importance of being able to pronounce and to respect people by calling them by their name. 
Yes. So, and I, again, was nine when I came to the United States. My name, my Nigerian name is Ife Oluwa, which means God's love. The Ife part is love, Ife, right? My family calls me that. My life's testimony has been kind of like my path has been led by love. I'm always surrounded by love. So when I came to the U.S. and I was pushed into the classroom and told to introduce myself to the class, instinctively, I knew, nine-year-old me knew your name is too different. It's not welcome here. It's going to be a burden on people's tongues. So switch it up. So in two seconds, I, re I replied with Lavette is my name. Lavette is a name that my aunt used to call me as a nickname. So from then on, I became Lavette. I would go to school on the first day, 15 minutes early, just so I can go tell my teachers, don't pronounce Ifeolua. That's not, don't use that for me. Call me Lavette. And it wasn't because I was ashamed of my name. It was because I actually wanted to protect it from what I felt was like people creating ugliness from it. People looking at my name and instantly going, it's too hard. And every, every time a substitute teacher came in and did that to my name, I was affirmed in knowing that I was protecting what was the sacred space to me. Because at home, I was still EFET. So Levette became lovey in college when I started blogging. And... Love you makes people smile instantly. And I think that's ultimately who I want to be. It's somebody who walks in the room and brings light in it. So for me, who is now Love you, Ajayi Jones, because my name is Ajayi. That's my last name. That's my dad's last name. The reason why I insisted on keeping it when I got married is because for the last 19 years that I've been blogging online, um, 12 years as a professional speaker, and maybe 10 years as somebody who's more visible, the Ajayi piece is something that people have had to learn how to pronounce. When I got married in September 2019, I made it a point to keep Ajayi as my last name with the Jones, which is my new name, because I wanted to honor who I was, my culture, my upbringing. I wanted to make sure that another kid who might have felt strange because of their name saw the Ajayi and heard you can still be who you are, as different as you are, and still thrive in spite of and because of it. So I kept the Ajayi to honor all those who have felt too different. I have kept it to honor my culture, to honor my family lineage, and to also make sure that I'd never choose the easy way out. You know, it'd be easy to tell people, just call me Lovey Jones. But I think names are something we have to honor. Our names are the badges we carry. Whenever we take the time to say, I'm gonna know how to spell your name, how to pronounce your name with intention in the right tone, I think it's a deep form of respect and reverence for the people around us. So I think one of the biggest points of affirmation and compliments is to insist that you call somebody what they want to be called. So that's why I am Lovey Ajayi Jones. But feel free to call me Lovey for short. Beautifully said. It's a wonderful story that was both kind of a gift to yourself and a gift to others to validate them and also a gift to someone like me with a name like Scott Miller to recognize mm -hmm. that you know being a citizen in a global world, a very small global world. It's part of my, um, it's incumbent upon me to respect and to pronounce and to, and to make the stretch to, you know, yeah. pronounce people's names in a way that shows validation to them. Let's talk about what it means to be a professional troublemaker, of which you are a self-proclaimed <laughs> leader of that movement. You taught that troublemakers are really disruptors. And of course, yeah. that seems validating and inspiring, and there's a downside to that. Talk about why did you name your book uh, Professional Troublemaker? And would you maybe expand on uh, what do you really mean about that? What does that 
what's the upside and perhaps the downside of being a professional troublemaker? Yeah. So think about the person who calls out your uncle's joke at dinner for being inappropriate. Think about the friend who says, let's have a tough conversation. We've been not on the same page recently. Think about the coworker who says, I'd love for us to think a little bit deeper about this campaign that we want to do so it's more thoughtful. I think those are all professional troublemakers. They're people who are using their voice for the greater good or taking action that will leave this world better. Whatever room that they are in, whether small or big, professional troublemakers are disruptors because for you to live in a world that is deeply unjust, which we all do, to make trouble is to be somebody who's trying to fix it who is actively engaged in the solution. They're not just standing in the corner and being like, I don't like things that are happening. They are an active part of the fix. Say, so professional troublemakers are trailblazers. You know, I think about the late great John Lewis who said, let us be ready to make necessary good trouble. He was an absolute professional troublemaker. He spent his life trying to get justice, trying to get racial justice, you know, economic justice. And I think professional troublemakers have missions. They they know, they feel deeply convicted about what their job is in any room that they are in, and they do what they can. Now, people hear troublemaking and they go, oh, I don't wanna be a troublemaker, why not? Again, if you live in a world that is not just to be a troublemaker, is to be somebody who is fighting for it. So I think one of the downsides is that you hear the word and you instantly go, oh gosh, that's scary, I don't wanna be named that. But I think one of the good things about it is to take on that idea is to be an active part of society. You know, we wonder how we end up in dumpster fire worlds. It's from people who stand, stand around and watch things just set on fire. It's from people who use silence instead of their voice. It's from people who don't use their power and access to people who have less than them. So I think professional troublemakers are doing all of that. We are very clear what our power is and how we can use it, whether it is our voice, whether it's collaboration, whether it's our empathy, but we use it. So I love it, I'm gonna challenge you because I know you can handle it. What do Let's you do say it. to the people that say, well, of course, Lovey says that. She's a best-selling author. She's been able to, quote, retire her mother, but you yeah. don't understand my situation. I'm a yeah. single mother of two kids or I'm a full-time mm -hmm. caretaker and my job is my everything. And yes. I can't afford to rock the boat. I can't afford to be a troublemaker. I can't afford to dissent. Lovey yeah. doesn't get it. What would you say to that person? I get it because here's the thing. I'm actually not asking you to make trouble. I'm asking people like me to make more trouble. Those of us who are people of privilege. You know, I am a black woman who is an immigrant who was poor at some point. I wrote this book and called it Professional Troublemaker because I said, if I, in all my margins, can write this book, it will give somebody else power. My hope is that those of us who then, you know, level up in our careers, who end up not being poor, who end up not worried about our next meal, who are not the single parents who are struggling from paycheck to paycheck. We should be using our power and our voice and our access to be making it better for you so you don't have to put that on the line. I think it's really important for people to understand that we shouldn't be asking the people who are struggling day by day to pay their bills, to be the ones who are speaking up at the job. If you are the person who's been there for 15 years, you have job security, you should be the one speaking up so she doesn't have to. I think that's what's important about making trouble is when you have the power, and a lot of us have more power than we realize, we must use it in service of other people. And that's what it truly means to embody professional troublemaking. It's not necessarily just disrupting a room because you wanna hear your voice. It's absolutely not that. It's not asking the person who has 
everything to lose to put it all on the line. Those of us who have less to lose, whose stakes are lower. If I speak up today and don't get a speaking engagement, I'll still be able to pay my bill. But I should speak up for the person who, if she lost her job, she'd lose her home. Okay, take it a step further. What do you say to the million of white men that are watching right now, listening to you, that are in the C-suite, or they're the leader of their division, and they look at you and they hear you and they think, oh, crap. If you think, oh, crap, when you hear me, it's because you know you haven't used your power in service of other people enough. And I think it's something you can start doing today. It's not something to beat yourself about now. It's about saying, you know what, I hear you. I'm gonna move forward and charge forward with courage. I think it's really important for white men especially to take the stance that the power that we have hoarded, now we need to actually share it with others. And here's the thing about power. Power is limitless. It's not a product that runs out when you use it. You still retain your power even if you use some of it today. So I'm actually, you know, I'm hoping people hear me and say, how am I using my positions of power to make somebody else's life a little bit easier, a little bit better? How am I using my position in the C-suite to make sure the women are getting paid equally in my company? Women who are doing equal work as men who are in their positions. How am I making sure that the intern's voice is heard? How are we making sure that we're actually gonna be a company that represents diversity? Not just quota system, but diversity of thought, expression, ideas, culture, tone. How are we making sure we're not penalizing people for showing up as themselves? And I think that's questions that everybody should ask each other, ask themselves, and start moving on. Lovey, are you, are you excited about the progress that's being made? Because progress has been made. Perhaps it's not as fast or as accelerated as some would like, or perhaps maybe it is. How would you, as a troublemaker, but as a, an influencer, a thought leader, a voice of both reason and kind of poking, how would you describe maybe the progress that's been made in the boardroom with DEI initiatives, with a seat at the table, all those metaphors we hear about, have we gone enough? Have we gone too slow? We have not gone far enough. Am I excited about the progress? I am hopeful about the progress because what typically happens with progress is when we start celebrating it too early, we stop and then we go backwards. What often happens is a moment in time, like the summer of 2020 happens where people are talking about diversity becomes a trendy conversation, companies say, we're gonna give all this money. And then we look up two years later and realize, oh, the companies actually didn't give that much money. And oh, the C-suites still look very monochromatic. I think what we need to do is stay focused on what progress feels like. You know, and progress is not gonna be determined by the people who are sitting in the boardrooms right now. It's gonna be the people who are saying we need more power, saying we're feeling good about this. I think for me, um, as somebody who's often going into companies externally, I'll go in for a snapshot of time, I'll do a speaking engagement or talk to their leaders and walk away and find out a couple of months later, you know what, something did change. They actually, we do use our voice more. A lot of people are listening. I'm encouraged when I hear things like that because it means that we all realize that the problems in front of us about diversity, about company culture, they might feel big, but it comes in the small changes. It comes in the meeting where the VP goes, you know what, I'm gonna sit back and let you all run it. Or I'd love to hear your feedback. This is also why I encourage companies to have, <clears throat> I encourage companies to have troublemakers internally. Not just have them, celebrate them. Why? Because they keep you from the moments that end up become public disasters. They're the people asking the questions 
saying, hmm, have we thought about this slogan a different way? They're the ones who are saying, let's figure out the blind spots that we're not thinking about. So I'm looking forward to more progress being made. I am hopeful for more progress being made. And I am actually thankful for the new conversations that we're having in a larger scale about leadership, about culture, about diversity, that's more transparent than it's ever been. So I just want us to keep doing it and then keep taking action. Lovey, what's the flip side? You write and speak about what troublemaking isn't. Yeah. It's not always the antagonist. It's not always the devil advocate. Talk about and give context to where do people uh, get it wrong? When they mm -hmm. become a troublemaker, how does it work against them, against their brand, reputation, against their promotion? Yeah. yeah. So being a troublemaker, using your voice, you know, doing what is in your power doesn't look like just being you know, reckless with the way you're speaking to people. It doesn't mean you are just speaking up about any and everything, whether or not you know about it or not. It means you know what things you're passionate about and you speak about those things. I think oftentimes people are not sure when to use their voice or when to say something, when to let the moment pass. I always think about when I'm sitting in the meeting or in the room and I'm wondering like, should I say that? I ask myself three questions. Do I mean it? Can I defend it? Can I say it thoughtfully? That third part is really important. And I think a lot of people who consider themselves troublemakers could get in more trouble if you're not saying what you wanna say thoughtfully. And this is not to guarantee that you think it's thoughtful, so everybody's gonna think it's thoughtful. But it's risk mitigation. It's you being like, I'm gonna do my part. Because here's the thing, being a troublemaker can sometimes get you in trouble for real. You know, it is hard to be the one challenger in the room. It is hard saying the thing and maybe even challenging your boss. Sometimes you might get punished for it. And I think that's something people are constantly afraid of, which is why they don't do the thing. But again, I always want to bring us back to what is actually at stake. If you're afraid to do the thing that feels hard, what are you afraid you're going to lose? Is it your job? A lot of us have way more job security than that. We're not going to lose our job from asking one thoughtful question, one challenging question in the meeting. And a lot of us, even if we did lose our job, we have amazing 401ks. You know, just being real honest, if we lost an opportunity or lost our jobs, our lives would not be destroyed, which is, again, takes us right back to we are in way more power than we believe we are in. So the stakes are low. You got to do it. And you got to basically don't assume the worst case scenario will happen. So then you make sure the best case scenario does not happen because you're quiet. Lovey, I have some shocking news for you. Uh, I've just learned that, in fact, you were born on June 27th, 1968 in Winter Park, Florida, because you clearly are my twin. <laughs> we, you have written my autobiography for good or for bad. Uh, would, you, would you repeat for the value of everyone what yes. the three questions are that yes. you ask yourself when you're thinking, should I say this or should I ask this question in a yes. meeting? Everybody think about this and write this back down. Okay, do I mean it? This question is especially important because you don't wanna be speaking just because you wanna hear your voice and just because you wanna be a contrarian. Two, can I defend it? So since you're challenging something, can you also respond to the challenge that might come back? What receipts do you have? What proof do you have to back up what you're about to say? And then can I say it thoughtfully or with love? And this is important because if you're gonna yell, you might wanna keep the tone down. If you want to come across a little bit too abrasive, you might wanna chill on that. How can you say this thing that is challenging the room in the best way possible? Do I mean it? Can I defend it? 
can I say thoughtfully or with love? And then there's, I'll give you a bonus question that really will convict you to speak up in the rooms that you find yourself in. And that one is, will my silence make me proud? Will my silence make me proud? Can I justify the fact that I did not use my voice, my power, my access while I'm sitting there and I let something happen that I could not put my stamp on? Will my silence make me proud? That usually will push me over the edge to go, I gotta say it. Where was Lovey Ajayi Jones 25 years ago when Scott Miller started his career? Better late than never. Uh, Lovey, one of my favorite guests on our entire 230 episodes of this podcast was Seth Godin, a friend mm -hmm. of mine, a prolific author, major force, I think, for good in the world. He's an iconoclast. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Uh, featured in Master Mentors Volume 1. Uh, he taught me many things, including the difference between being reckless and being fearless. Mm. And I spent much of my career thinking I was being fearless when, in fact, I was being reckless, reckless with my brand, mm reckless with other people's feelings, and not mm. always saying everything on my mind. I'm guessing, have you learned that the hard way? Did you learn that the easy way? How did you learn your version of when perhaps you thought you were being fearless, but in fact you were actually being reckless? Absolutely. You know, in Professional Troublemaker, I wrote a chapter, talked about the time I trended on Twitter because of something I said. And I had to learn that the bigger that my platform got. I am no longer just a girl from Nigeria writing her thoughts down. I am brand lovey. And not everything that I say will be thoughtful or received thoughtfully, right? So it's a constant battle, I actually think. Oftentimes we do think everything we're doing might be reckless. So Scott, you're saying that you thought you were fearless, but you were being reckless and then later realized it. Yeah, I've had those moments. Again, trended on Twitter, scared me wild. So you know, how did I learn? You learn sometimes by fire. Let's be actually, let's actually be honest. When we're talking about the struggle making thing, I'm always like, look, I'm asking people to do this, but it's not without risk. And I think you have to take the risk though, to learn and to be better. You probably became a better thinker when you realized you were being reckless instead of fearless, right? I bet you adjusted certain things about how you were approaching the world, how you were thinking through things, I always think about those failures that happen in the moments when we fall flat on our face as growth opportunities. So I'm like, you know what? If you do get slapped on the hand, if you do have to learn a painful lesson on the other side of it, you're gonna be a much, much better human being. And my fails always turn me into a better thinker, better leader, better person, better wife, better sister, all of that. Reminds me of the time my boss came up to me and said, quote, Scott, you're standing at a gas station holding a match, end quote. He was describing what the next minute of my career might look like. Uh, mm. Lovey, speak to the role that fear plays in people deciding to be a troublemaker and standing up or sitting down and maybe yeah. not taking calibrated risks. You have a lot of intimate uh, stories about the role fear played in your decision to not go on and do your TED Talk, which ended up having millions and millions of views because you did tape it. Talk about perhaps how you uh, name, identify, and conquer the role fear plays in your own life. Yeah. So I've made a friend with fear, to be quite honest, because when I realized how much I was using fear to make my decisions, the moment I stopped letting it dictate my yeses or my noes, I won because of it. And I'll use my TED 
talk as an example, you know, my TED talk now has 8 million views. I did it in uh, December, 2017. And I almost said no, I actually did say no to that TED talk twice when asked to do it because I was afraid that I was going to get on that stage and bomb. I was afraid I wasn't ready, which it was based on nothing. At that point, I'd been a professional speaker already for six years. I was just afraid that was such a big stage that I had not deserved or earned my way onto because imposter syndrome. And I said no twice. It was two weeks before Ted was happening. And um, I said, you know what? I can actually at least just go for a day and cheer on my friends because I was keynoting another conference. And they said, well, if you're coming, we want you to speak. And I was about to turn it down a third time, chock full of fear. And I called one of my friends and I said, listen, this is wild. Everybody else has had coaches and practice for four months and here they want me to do it in two weeks, come up with a new talk and get on the stage. And my friend said, everybody's not you. You got to do this. You're being afraid. So get off my phone and go write your talk. And I ended up writing the talk about how fear often stops us from doing the thing we are purposed to do. It was really, a, it was, it was me speaking to me and a reminder to me to not let fear lead my decisions. And for me now, I realize that Fear is my friend. If I am afraid, typically means it's a growth opportunity. It's a chance for me to step outside of my comfort zone to be the greater version of myself. Or it's just something new for me to just try and see if I like. So, you know, went skydiving, got married, wrote two New York Times bestselling books after I stopped using fear as my choice maker. And I think for me now, fearlessness, fearlessness just means I'm not letting fear let me do less. Not everybody is you. I need like a Lovey Jones pep talk every morning from 4.50 to 5 o'clock in my bathroom. Uh, <laughs> Lovey, I want to finish today's conversation with this idea you say that there's, there's power in recognizing that not everybody is going to like or love you. Now, that doesn't yeah. mean that you, you, are, you, know, you have a, a swagger about every meeting, every conversation, every podcast, every book you write. You're a responsible manager of your brand and reputation, but... Talk to the point that, in fact, there is power in knowing that not everybody is your fan. Yes. You know, as a branding geek and strategist for 10 years, I realized that when people insist on being liked by everybody, you're actually diluting who you say you are. We're so afraid of not being liked that I'm just like, you know what? You're constantly chasing the people you're supposed to repel instead of focusing on the folks you're supposed to attract. You got to be the deepest version of yourself so your people can find you, whether it's your audience, your readers, your fellow colleagues, whether it's your mentors. They have to know you so well that they're like, that, that person speaks to me, as opposed to you trying to be middle of the road, trying to make everybody like you so nobody feels strongly about you. I think some of the best personalities, some of the strongest voices, some of the most impactful people in the world are people who have not cared whether somebody liked them. Why? Because they were so committed to being themselves authentically that they focused purely on the people who already understood them, the people who they would serve to help. You know, I think about who I am, like there's, there are going to be people who don't like me and that's perfectly fine. I think that's important to exist because then the people who I speak to directly, the people who feel like we have shared values, shared experiences, will see me and feel deeply connected to me. I need to be speaking to them as opposed to trying to convince the people who were never meant to be on my side to be on my side. So I think even Seth would let you know, branding looks like, you know, consistent thought about who you are, whether good or bad. 
So just let go of the idea that everyone's going to like you. Not, you don't like everybody, so you know everybody's not going to like you. And that's okay. You're still good. You're still somebody who is of value. You just need to find who your people are. What if my list is 150 long of people who I know that don't like me? Lovey, I'm sure it's longer Just 150? That. That's impressive. I know, exactly. I'm sure it's longer <laughs> than that. I said 150. Lovey, send us off with this. What do you want me to know? Mm. Wow, that's good. I think what I want you to know is that every day is a chance to choose courage in this world that throws many things at us that we can be afraid of. It is constantly being topsy-turvy every single day, every single hour, you can choose courage. It is a habit that you build over time. You can be unbrave tomorrow and be brave today. All of us need to use our power, our voice, our access, and use it courageously to leave this world better than we found it. And that's gonna look like making trouble sometimes. That's gonna look like somebody not liking you. But at the end of the day, when you are being lowered into the ground, what is the legacy you wanna leave? Hopefully it's not one of, oh my God, they were really nice. Hopefully it's one of, they were really kind, they used their power and we're glad they were here. Lovey Ajayi Jones, best-selling author of both I'm Judging You and Professional Troublemaker by this book. You're going to love it. Uh, thank you for coming on today. I, you know what, like people loved uh, Professional Troublemaker so much and adults, we're actually sharing it with their teenagers that now I'm actually, I have a, a one called Rising Troublemaker that's coming out for teenagers because I want them to get this message before they turn 35, before they turn 50, before they turn 60, that they do deserve to live in this world audaciously and they should be using their voice starting now. Lovey, thanks for joining us. I have three sons that are just coming up into their teen years. Yes. Should I buy that book for them or should I brace myself and then buy the book for them? <laughs> no, buy the book for them. It comes out May 17th. It's called Rising Troublemaker. I'm so excited for, for little me to get this in her hands. So yeah, 12-year-old me, 15-year-old me, 18-year-old me, this would have been the book she needed. Maybe we should have you back on and talk about the concepts in that book. That'd be kind of fun. I would love that. I would absolutely love that. Lovey, I am better now for knowing you. I am definitely better and validated from reading your books. Everybody, she has a podcast. She is a reluctant Twitter trender, but a renowned uh, keynote speaker, coach, and troublemaker. Lovey, again, thank you for your time today. Scott, thank you so much for having me. Those questions were amazing. How will we top this? It keeps getting better. What an honor today with Lovey. We'll see you back here next week for a new conversation on leadership. <laughs>